My text today is, as Ray said, Psalm 116, verse 12. What shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? One verse, old school. What shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? The idea it expresses is clear. God is good to us. Everything we have and need is from him. The question is what can and should we give back to him? This was the text of the first sermon preached in Sydney. It was preached by uh, the chaplain to the First Fleet, the Reverend Richard Don- Johnson, on the 3rd of February, 19, uh, 1788. Uh, Johnson is the person uh, after whom Johnson Street and Johnson Creek in Annandale are named, so we've got a connection there. Uh, Johnson, of course, would have used the King James Version, which reads, What shall I render unto the Lord for all the benefits towards me? Render is just an old-fashioned word for give. I'm preaching this at the invitation of the Reverend Doctor, Uncle Raymond Minicon, Aboriginal elder. You may prefer to hear from him, as I certainly would, uh, but he has asked me to speak. I'm doing so on Aboriginal Sunday, the Sunday before, the 26th of January, whether you want to call that Invasion Day, a day of mourning, Survival Day, or Australia Day. Uncle Ray has set me and the other Anglican ministers the task of considering what does this text say to Australia within our contemporary situation here in Australia in the challenge of competing narratives in Australia Day. Uncle Ray, has uh, described the competing narratives as, on the one hand, a day of reflecting, honouring and remembering with pride the founding and establishing of the first permanent British settlement on this continent and in this region of the world. Uh, Australia is now home to approximately 26 million people from most nations on Earth. And on the other hand, For Indigenous Australians, 26th of January represents the disruption and dispossession of First Nations history and cultural connections to their lands, language and heritage. Uncle Ray says, this day and date confront and remind First Nations people about their loss and ongoing suffering and trauma and struggle for injustice, dignity and basic human rights. The benefits we have from God today are wildly different. We could say in spiritual terms, the benefits are the same. God's revelation of himself in creation, the Bible and Jesus are the same for black and white as are his promises of salvation. Jesus did not die a different death for black people than white people. And the resurrection and heaven will be the same for all who put their trust in God. And if we ignore the obvious challenge Uncle Ray has set, we could say that the things we can and should give to the Lord are, in relational terms, the same. Thanks, respect, reverence, love, trust and obedience. 
After all, there is one church, one faith, and we are united in Christ. And in a sense, you really don't need me to tell you that. If you're a Christian, you know they are the things that we owe back to God. The context of our passage is salvation. The psalmist was, had been released from the cords of death and, and overcome trouble. In response to his call, O Lord, save me, the Lord was gracious and compassionate and delivered him from death. And the psalmist's response was not, Phew, I'm glad I got out of that. It was, What shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? And the psalmist answers his own question. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfil my vows to the Lord. Obedience in the presence of all his people. Today, I could just look at salvation. And that would be interesting because the salvation the psalmist was talking about was really quite different from the salvation that we talk about. He was talking about being alive in this life. When we talk about salvation, there's a bit of that, but the thing that we're really talking about is eternal life. So I could draw the contrast between the old and the new and what happened in Jesus. And that would be a really good thing to do. I know that Uncle Ray shares the joy and wonder we have in this shared salvation, salvation that comes through Jesus. But that's not what he's asked me to do on this Aboriginal Sunday. A standard or even inspired sermon on salvation will just not do it because things look very different depending on which side of the gap you stand. The gap I'm referring to is the gap in living standards and life expectations between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people that governments have talked about since April 2007 and done so little to close. Gaps in health and well-being, education, employment, justice, safety, housing, land and waters, languages and digital inclusion, to which we could add self-respect, hope, and many other things. The huge gaps challenge us when we think of each thing we can and should give to the Lord for the good he has done to us and how we should fulfil our vows of obedience. To respect God, surely we should also respect each person who bears his image. Where is trust in the Lord when we have those, when we who have so much hold on to it at the expense of those who have so little? Where is obedience when the law of God calls out for justice for all and when an indigenous person would go to jail for things that I might just get a mild caution for? When indigenous people make up around 3% of the Australian population and 28% of the prison population. And when indigenous deaths in custody are a national shame for people who actually feel shame. And where is love if I am to not only love God but also my neighbours 
and Indigenous people, our neighbours. Uncle Ray has also invited me to think about how Indigenous people may answer this question. Over 70% of Indigenous people count themselves as Christian, which is higher than the national average. They've got more sense than many. The people of the Torres Strait refer to the arrival of the good news of Jesus in Arab Island on the 1st of July 1871 as the coming of the light. Indigenous Australians love the word of God in the Bible and they love Jesus and their generosity towards non-Indigenous people reflects the generosity of Jesus. I come from England and no one in our scar tree mob has told me to go back to where I come from. At St John's, we have been invited to share worship and table with them. That's a generosity that comes from the knowledge of Jesus and his offer of salvation for all. So First Nations people know better than most the answer to this question, to God's love in creation, in Jesus Christ and his offer of salvation to eternal life, we should respond with thanks, respect, trust, love and obedience. As I said, the answer is the right answer for every single person in Australia today. But starting with thanks, should First Nations Australians thank God for the frontier wars? the genocide, the diseases that wiped out huge numbers in the first 150 years, the theft and destruction of their lands and fisheries, the stolen generation, the deaths in custody, white churches that look down on them and reject their spiritual heritage, and the gap that successive governments continue to fail to close. Where is the providential God in that? We do not have a copy of the sermon that Richard Johnson preached in the open at Sydney Cove on that sultry day in early February 1788. We do not know how many of the 750 or so convicts and around 550 crew, soldiers and family members were at the service. But it seems many were ordered to be there. Likewise, we do not know if any Gadigal people were there. Johnson was an evangelical, selected by John Newton, the composer of Amazing Grace. It's likely that the whole psalm was read, as Carlin did for us today. And if that's the case, the focus may well have been on God's deliverance of the people in the first fleet from the ordeal of six months' journey by sea and the challenge of the, uh, what lay ahead for them. Most of the convicts had already been spared in the sense that their sentences of death had been commuted to seven or 14 years of transportation. Only, only, only 48 had died on the journey, a much lower percentage than the second fleet. For, for that, the, of the 1,038 convicts embarked, 273 died during the voyage and 48, uh, 486 landed sick. But they still did better than the Gadigal people, 
of the Aora Nation or the indigenous people of Tasmania, both of whom were effectively wiped out. The First Fleeters could have been reflecting on their survival of the journey and the death that, had, uh, that was around them. Perhaps some of them called on the Lord as they faced incarceration below decks, rough seas, disgusting and inadequate food and fetid water. What lay ahead of them? What, what hope could they have? Hard labour, the lash, death from disease and extraordinary isolation. I, I wonder how thankful they were. But what can we render to the Lord? I'm sure many preachers over the years have used this passage to raise money for their church. Every dollar you have, everything you own comes from God, so give some of it back so that we can build our church or replace our roof. That is not what the psalmist meant when it was written sometime in post-exilic Israel over 2,000 years ago. I doubt it's where Johnson went with it because he was preaching to convicts who had nothing but the rags they stood in and soldiers who had little more. And Johnson would have known that this was about responding wisely to God's merciful gift of salvation. And I'm sure that other preachers have used this passage for their own political or social agendas, and I have to be careful with that today. I'm sure some have used it to say, give your vote to this party or another, or in America, oppose abortion, or support gun ownership, or Donald Trump. Support the status quo or change it. There's a remarkable power that someone responding to this passage has and I do not want to abuse it. For the temptations are great to promote our own agendas. But let us return to the specific question Uncle Ray posed and cries out from all the statistics on closing the gap. What does this text say to Australia within our contemporary situation here with the competing narrative of Australia Day. Well, we should start with thanks, for God has given us so much, life, the honour of sharing his image, his son, his wisdom, the gifts of his spirit, his love and mercy and his offer of salvation, and many more. Yes, we start with thanks. But I can be thankful and passive. I could spend all my time being thankful, but that's not enough. Because God wants and deserves more than my praise and thanks. He wants my obedience and love, and love is sacrificial action. With obedience, let's start with the creation mandate to care for God's creation, as if we were God. And I couldn't say more than Uncle Ray has already said. In Genesis 1, we see that God intended humans to care for his creation as he does. And there's nothing that has happened since then that has changed or diluted that. There is no doubt that the Aboriginal people changed the landscape of Australia through fire and their own land use and, and water management practices. But it's also clear they did so 
in a way that protected the fragile and then productive soils and the rivers and streams. They lived in harmony with the land, listening, learning, observing and conserving. The obedience we should render to the benevolent creator God must include protecting flora and fauna and the integrity of this land and its waters. We must learn from indigenous land use and fire management. And we must do much more to reduce our impact on climate and the land and seas. We must conserve and restore, for that's what it's like to be the God who created everything. And we owe him that. Speaking of land, uh, I think we must also consider again the implications of God's words in Acts 17.26. For one man, no, sorry, from one man, which is Adam, God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God clearly gave this land that we call Australia to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who first inhabited these lands and their descendants. I can't see that he has given anyone permission to change that, whether through land theft, assimilation, or the destruction of First Nations people. And therefore, our obedience to the purposes of God should include a proper reckoning over Indigenous land rights, way beyond the Mabo judgment and native title legislation. It requires at least truth-telling, treaties and compensation. And for us at Glebe, to make sure the benefits of the land that are held on trust for us are shared properly and reflect God's purposes. We do this in part through our emergency relief program where many of our clients are Indigenous and through employing Indigenous people on our staff and through Scar Tree Ministries, which many of you support. But what more should we do? And this isn't a rhetorical question. I really want you to be thinking about it and talking with us and the church wardens. What more should we do to share the benefits of the land we have? We're talking about this in the context of our ongoing discussions around reconciliation. It's something that your parish council is considering. What are we going to do with our rental properties? And how can we use them to help Indigenous people in Glebe? And what should every Anglican church in Australia do? They all stand on stolen land, every last one of them. And they exist because of the exploitation of land that was stolen. Exploitation through agriculture, mining, manufacturing, services and property development. Most of the wealth of our churches and in Australia is derived from stolen land. And it's not good enough to say, well, I didn't steal it. Because there are moral implications of being beneficiaries of stolen land and genocide. And let us consider Acts 17 verse 27. I must admit I hadn't really 
considered the implications of this before, but they are profound. God did this, gave the land to the First Nations people so that they would speak, that so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far away from any one of us. God gave this land to the indigenous people so that they may know God. Isn't that interesting? For me, that means we should think far more about how indigenous people have used and thought about the land God gave them to connect with the God who created it and created them. Take away the land and you take away that God-given opportunity for connection. We don't talk about that when we talk about land rights. But we should. This is what God is telling us we should talk about. This land was given for a purpose, to help Indigenous people connect with God. And we should talk more about it and think more about it and explore Indigenous spirituality and its links with the Christian faith. God did not arrive in Australia with the first fleet. He has been here since he created it. And he has made himself known for a very, very long time, over 60,000 years. He's been speaking to the people who live here. And, and what can we learn from that? And what does that mean in terms of the land that was given to establish that connection? Now on to other purposes of God uh, that should shape our obedience to God. Uh, in Matthew 12, 18, we hear God say, Jesus will proclaim justice to the nations. Justice gets mentioned 130 times in the Bible. In Matthew 23, it's linked with mercy and faithfulness. Justice involves truth-telling. It is good that the lie of terra nullius, no one here, has been exposed and far fewer people consider Indigenous people morally and intellectually inferior to white people than they did in the age of Richard Donaldson and for mo most of the first 200 years. And the history of Indigenous people and what colonisers and their successors have done is being told and taught more in schools and the media than it was when I was at school. But far too much is hidden and glossed over. Can't we just put that behind us? Can't we just move on? Well, it depends on what side of the gap you stand on. A fair few white people want us all to move on. But there is no truth and justice in that. And so the call for truth-telling demands our support. Despite slight improvements, many people still consider Indigenous people as lazy, unreliable, and at least in part responsible for the circumstances in which they live. Uh, of course, many Indigenous people work very hard. You just need to talk to Uncle Ben about what life was like working on the railway tracks in the heat and cold, and how much and the weights that he had to carry and the effect it's had on his strong body. 
Or, or just ask Uncle Ray to see his plan for the year. It would daunt any one of you what he's got planned for this year. But the point I'm trying to make is not that some people work incredibly hard, but that the Protestant work ethic has never been part of God's revelation of himself. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that we have to work at least 40 hours a week in a job that others recognise as proper employment. The world God has given us is so bountiful and we don't need to be all flogging it to death if we care for it and share it as God intended. Yet the opportunities for proper nutrition, good food and employment are widely different around our country as our access to good medical services. So obedience means sharing better, but also understanding what employment looks like better. Justice also uh, involves equal treatment before the law. No one can pretend that's the case in Australia today. Incarceration rates and deaths in custody are, and just the way that pe people talk to black people compared to the way they talk to me shows how far we have to go. And something I only put together as I've been looking at the Constitution is that the Constitution actually gives the federal government power over Aboriginal affairs and that power overrides anything that the states do. So when you have the government, the federal government saying, oh, but that's a state matter, Oh, that's a state matter. Oh, criminal justice system, that's each by state, you know, and we don't agree with it, but we're just talking with them. It's just a smokescreen. The federal government has the power to step in and override the barbaric practices of Western Australia and Northern Territory. They're just not prepared to do it. Anyway, a bit of distraction, that one. So I want to suggest that obedience and love that we should give to God involve very directly removing the gap. Not just closing the gap a little at a time, but wiping it out so that the health, education, employment and every other indicator of well-being are equal around the country. Which brings me to the voice. Uh, I know that some people would like treaty and other things first, but I'm a firm believer in take what you can get Getting the voice doesn't preclude those other things. Get what's possible now. And I recognise that some people do not know our constitution or, or how things work, but I do. We already have enough detail on how the voice will work to support it. Uh, as Professor Anne Toomey from the Sydney University Law School showed in a recent article in the Sydney Morning Herald, we do not normally put all the detail in the Constitution. Partly because we don't need to, but also it's very difficult to change the Constitution. You want a system that you can change uh, as circumstances arise. <coughs> the mechanics of the voice can be left to Parliament. The federal government has the power to make laws about tax. That power is confirmed in one short sentence. The Parliament shall, subject to the Constitution, have power to make laws for the peace, order and good government of the Commonwealth with respect to taxation. 
but so not to discriminate between states or parts of states. When I last looked, the taxation laws of Australia ran to over 2,000 pages and filled four volumes. So that they're much more in America. So, so the taxes that federal government can raise and the mechanics of our tax system are left to Parliament, not enshrined in the Constitution. And so it can be with the voice, once the existence of the voice is entrenched in the Constitution. Although they deny it, I think many of the people who claim to oppose the voice because they've not seen enough detail just don't want to listen to blackfellas and will do anything to kill the voice. You may wonder where the second reading today comes from, uh, from the Gospel of, of, uh, of Matthew, and they are words of Jesus. I gave you three of the seven wo woes, uh, and where it fits in is that it just shows how much Jesus hated hypocrisy. Hypocrisy among leaders, hypocrisy among people with power. Jesus hates it. And yet when we look around our country today, that's what we see. When it comes to giving back to the Lord, he wants us to have open eyes and soft hearts and to get rid of our hypocrisy. Some politicians have claimed to oppose the voice because it won't do anything to close the gap. To start with, the voice may result in advice with indi uh, from Indigenous people on things that will close the gap. I'm sure it will. And technically, it's not the purpose of the voice, but I I'm, sure that it, you know, I'm sure it will help. But the bigger offence to me is that the Constitution gives the Federal Parliament power over Aboriginal affairs. Those words there, for the good peace government in relation to race. It gives them power over original, uh, Aboriginal affairs, which means all the resources of the federal government and the whole of the federal budget and the federal parliament's ability to override states has been there since 1967 to close the gap. And successive governments have done very little and often done more good and more harm than good. Some of the gaps have got wider. If the politicians who do not yet support the voice really cared about closing the gap, they would have done a huge amount more or be promising to do so much more because they have the power. But it's easier to undermine the voice. So part of the justice we must render to God is holding our politicians to account to use the powers they have to do the good that they should and support the voice. The subjects of peace and reconciliation are bigger than I can deal with today, but there can be no peace and lasting reconciliation until there is truth-telling, justice and closing the gap. Sadly for some, peace means others should shut up. Just sweep it under the carpet give the appearance of being a harmonious, multicultural country, in effect playing the equivalent of happy families at Christmas. Now, there's a place for that. But in our national discussions between Indigenous and not, we just can't keep on 
trying to play happy families. We've got to tell the truth. For Jesus, peace meant shalom. Not a superficial papering over of the cracks, but a deep abiding sharing of all the blessings of God. Peace, prosperity, joy, good health and abundance. I keep banging on about this, but this is what peace means to Jesus. And we are here to try and do that. God has given us all we need to achieve that. What we should render unto God is that for us all, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, should share God's goodness in justice, love and peace. So the things that we should render unto God are the sacrifices and actions and prayers that express and embody our thanks, respect, love and obedience to God so that we may all share the benefits that he has given us. God's gift of life and salvation are wonderful. But our prayer is also that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know a lot about what God's will looks like. And we have the responsibility of helping seeing it done. Not just waiting for Jesus to return, but making a difference now. Should we do that? And that's the right answer. So, so let's stand now and uh, join uh, uh, Indigenous musicians uh, in praising God. Please stand. Uh-huh.